0: This is The Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity, because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing, saying the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people, it's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition and everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer.
1: Welcome to The Base Catholic. I'm obviously very disturbed by the result of issue one here in Ohio, but I think I'm a little less disturbed in how people voted because that doesn't really surprise me. And I think I'm more disturbed in the fact that life is being left as a democratic question rather than presented as an inherent answer. So any opportunity I have to critique liberalism, I'm going to take it. This episode will feature an interview with New Polity's Mark Barnes to sort of unpack what his faction of integralism has to say about our political structures. And then later, I'll be speaking with Lake County Right to Life Executive Director Jackie Fetzko about what really happened in Ohio. And then lastly, I'll be speaking with Americans United for Life's Tom Shakley to further discuss these issues and liberalism at large. Here is my interview with Mark Barnes. I discovered your work from New Polity a couple years ago when I discovered the concept of integralism. But I have friends that went to Franciscan, so they knew your blog, Bad Catholic, back in the yeah, day, yeah, and yeah. they were telling me about it. And one thing I actually just recently learned about you that I'm—I didn't know that I didn't know this—was that weren't you behind One Flesh? Yeah, mm-hmm. I actually ripped off your guys's posters for an event that I was doing at Liberty. So I was a Protestant. So I'm a Catholic convert, and. I was against birth control. And so I was doing wow. a bunch of events with our pro-life group. And I mean, those flyers were all over campus and people would oh, tear awesome. them down. Yeah. It That's was nice. kind of.
2: So you, you were against birth control as a Protestant.
1: Yeah. So there's a. How did there's you work a... that one out? <laughs> so no, no, I'm really mo-
2: genuinely curious.
1: Yeah. It was honestly the, the, I think the main issue that kind of drove me towards Catholicism. So there's a documentary, the birth control movie made by Protestant theologians. And their whole argument is that the entire church, all of, you know, all of Christendom was against birth control until 1930. And so what's interesting is that they're arguing from a perspective of church history and how scripture used to be interpreted. Mm -hmm. So what was weird is I had never, you know, as a Protestant, no one ever talks about church history. It's like the early church. And then you skip to Martin Luther. And so when they're talking about this, I was like, that concept obviously makes sense. You know, If the church thought something for X amount of years, the burden of proof is on the new idea. So I had never considered that before. And so I'm against birth control as a Protestant, but then I'm like, I kind of should apply this principle to every other piece of doctrine and relook at the early church and look at church history, the Reformation. And so that was kind of the first domino. It's interesting because I was I was looking at the the I was reading an article that was about the website and they were pulling quotes from the website. And I, I forgot this, that you were taking the approach from like a more secular perspective, which is yeah. interesting, considering your approach to politics. I was kind of <laughs> curious why you decided to go that route.
2: I mean, part of it is that this happened quite a while ago before I had undergone a conversion of my own, which involved understanding the nature of liberalism a little bit better. And so part of it, I say, really was uh, this idea that in order for a particular idea to be politically valid, to be socially relevant, um, it has to be translated into secular terms. And I had this idea, which I think is very common for Catholics even today, that a certain translation has to occur on the eve of politics before you, you enter into that neutral secular space where you're making arguments of reason that are common to everyone. And I don't think that anymore. I think that all arguments are religious arguments. I think that the very construction of a irreligious secular space as the synchronon of political discourse is a way of suppressing the church. And it always has been. it It was built to suppress the church. Liberalism is a way of making Christianity irrelevant constantly, continuously in our lives and in the world. So part of it was that was converting... But that's not to say that I think that there's somehow no place for arguments of reason that don't specifically rely on revelation. I do think it is. It's just that they are second-order arguments now. So yeah. I, I do think it is the case, for instance, that you know widespread menstrual suppression um, has terrible health effects and terrible environmental effects that anyone of good faith and and just common sense can look at and say, this is not. How we should operate. We shouldn't be working so hard to um, oppress the female fertility cycle into an image of the male sexuality, even to the detriment of their health and happiness. That just seems like a bad idea for anyone. But of course, when you start asking deeper questions about, like, well, what does it mean to be female? Why preserve a fertility cycle? What does it mean to be happy? And why do we value health? All of a sudden, you're back to asking questions of, of a first order, religious questions. And so those two shouldn't be seen as distinct or at war, the way they are within liberalism, where you drop all your religious arguments, you drop your biblical arguments, you drop your arguments from authority and tradition, and you just enter into a kind of uh, appeal to the pragmatic pragmatic reason of another person. That I think is false, but I do think that there's a place for these for these arguments against contraception.
1: Can I ask, you mentioned that you had a conversion getting away from liberalism. Can I ask, you know, what prompted that?
2: The seeds of it are always there for a Catholic. No Catholic who is raised in the faith can be comfortable with the idea that his religion is essentially a private reality that can only move beyond his own personal relationship with God if it um, does so without really mattering to others so without coercion without law without building custom without building new cities without essentially evangelizing the world so that the very structures of the world are are sanctified i mean you can't grow up on the one hand hearing vatican ii sort of ideas that the laity is called to the sanctification of the temporal order and at the same time hold that the temporal order is somehow sealed off from the relevance of divine revelation and from the church um, so the tension is always there. It's not a conversion in the sense of suddenly you realize something. It's a conversion in the sense of trying to resolve this tension. There's probably a lot of moments, but the presence of things that you would die for always seemed to me to war against the kind of notions that that liberal society was offering. Like the idea that, for instance, if you have moral opposition to abortion, there's some kind of limit uh, beyond a prudential limit, that you simply cannot enforce your your belief as it were, when your belief is that human beings shouldn't be killed, that there's a certain you know space for free freedom of thought um, that should just go on unchecked by um, norms of justice. That's another huge tension. Uh, Andrew Willie Jones is probably the first person to articulate for me what this tension amounted to. Uh, so in his book, Before Church and State, he kind of clears the ground for a lot of um, thinking beyond liberalism, where he describes the, the church-state dichotomy as a false dichotomy, <laughs> that in fact, within the Christian worldview, there's simply the church, um, and that this church has a laity, and it has um, a clerical side, but that what we see in the establishment of liberalism is not some kind of natural reality of politics that's apart from the church or something like that the establishment of of liberalism and all of its ideas is a, is a work of the laity. Like the laity did this. And, you know, he, he would refer to it as heresy, sometimes apostasy, depending on what mood he's in. But
3: mm-hmm.
2: the point is that what we are not experiencing is Christianity vis-a-vis a sort of natural world order that we have to get involved in and sanctify. We are experiencing Christianity vis-a-vis a system and a mechanism that Christians built precisely to suppress the reality of Christianity, and that just seems like a clear picture of the world to me. So his, his writing in *Before Church and State* um, helped open a door into thinking beyond um, beyond the idea that the Catholic is just there to kind of be a sanctifying influence on the world, as if it's like, well, I'm going to be holy and I'm going to be virtuous, and it's going to have all these great effects in the real world as if the Catholic thing was somehow a fake world that has to continuously enter into the work, into the real and break in there.
3: To yeah. say, no, 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 it's
2: quite the other way around. The Catholic world is the real world. And our job in being virtuous and being holiness is always to invite people to join us out of a false reality and into reality itself. That just seemed right to me. So thinking along those lines, you know, seemed like a natural growth in the faith. It didn't seem like some kind of edgy, like, now I'm a Post-liberal Catholic or something.
1: It seems that there's kind of these two factions. I don't know. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Oh. Um, where it's, you know, New Polity and then kind of Vermeule and company. Mm-hmm. Um, Adrian Vermeule, Patrick Deneen, Sarah amari Chad Pecknold, and um, Glenn Pappin. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to make sense on... What the differences are in your guys' interpretation when it comes to the underlying philosophy or theology?
2: What's the difference? Well, I think most fundamentally, the kind of thought over at New Polity is very concerned with regime. And so what this means is that in the classical political tradition, there's always a relationship between the moral, spiritual character of the people the subjects and then the kind of rule which is efficacious for them so characters subjects on the one hand and then structures on the other that form a single regime and this is just just basic in the tradition so like with a like an oligarchy for instance It's not the case that an oligarchy is some kind of constitutional rule by the rich. Like the rich will have these duties and they will will have these rights. Oligarchy is a form of power that's made efficacious by everyone being greedy. And so the the presumption is that you can have rule by the rich precisely when you have greedy subjects. But if you have subjects who aren't greedy, you can't have rule by the rich. Power is made efficacious not simply by sheer force, That almost never it never works because power always has to convince people to uh, attain its aims, right? And that means that there has to be a synchronicity and an understanding between the rule and the ruler, the ruled and the ruler. And so, in the classical political tradition, there's all this discussion of regime forms. Our basic understanding is that in order to have a Christian form of politics, both sides need to be attended to. You need to have a people who are growing in holiness and who are growing in virtue, which is the goal or the end of politics, such that they can receive law and command and rule in freedom and in obedience because the ruler and the ruled are pursuing the same end, namely the common good, together. That this is an ideal form, but it's also the kind of form that makes virtuous rule efficacious. So what I mean is if you have a vicious people, then a virtuous ruler is not efficacious. The trouble that we often have, I think, with the folks you mentioned is that they seem to be describing our current militarized nation state as a natural form of politics, rather than as a particular regime that relies for its efficacy on all of us being self-interested, alienated subjects. What I mean to say is, so to give an example, maybe would be helpful. One of the things that When we look at, for instance, bureaucracy, Mm -hmm. we see in bureaucracy something that is structurally effective because everyone in the society there is self-interested and is not acting for the common good, but is acting for their own self-interest. Why? Well, because a bureaucrat doesn't need to obey the kind of policies that he's enacting in the sense of he doesn't need to assent to them reasonably. A bureaucrat is mercenary in the sense of he does it for a job. He does it for pay. And part of the rise of modern political states is the rise of bureaucracy, which is to say that the administration of politics is done increasingly through mercenaries. So increasingly through people who do it for pay. And this is basically our state system. And I don't think anyone would deny this. I think anyone who speaks about the administrative state, whether it's or myself or Andrew, are all going to say, yeah, no, we're all doing it for a salary, obviously. But then The question, there's two different responses to this. So when we look at this, we tend to say that this is how power is efficacious insofar as you can only motivate people through their self-interest, insofar as there's this loss of the view of the common good, insofar as law sort of has to become coercive and distant because people are increasingly vicious and will only do things for things like money and under the threat of coercion. And what that indicates is that the task of Christian laity, who's supposed to sanctify this, can't just stop at, say, putting Catholics in charge of bureaucracies. Unless by that, you somehow mean that Catholics in charge of bureaucracies would in fact destroy the form of bureaucracy as the way that we govern, as the way that we relate between the ruler and the ruled. And so this is why for us, we look at a lot of um, structures of Christendom and how and how they're very different. So to give an example, the integrist position would seem to suggest that, okay, we have these um, mercenary standing armies, right, where we're all fighting for pay and the army is always ready to go. And that's a basic structure of a militarized society. And so the Christian response in sanctification is not to question the structure itself as a as the result of a particular regime. But simply to have Catholic generals, as it were, to you know make of the institution, turn it towards Catholic ends, right? Turn it towards the good. Whereas we would look at the same thing in comparison to Christendom and note that they didn't that within the Christian Empire they didn't have standing armies. So, for Mm. instance, when there was the goal of the Crusades, what had to be done is a, a muster. So they had to ask and encourage families and communities to form an army for the sake of its particular end. So this is very distinct from the standing army. In that difference, you see, you know, if if you're simply to say that, you know, the standing army is simply a natural form of politics and Catholics just need to lead it. I think what that misses is the idea that there is a form of everything that is itself Catholic, that there isn't simply the Christian extrinsic leadership of a particular structure of modernity, but there's actually Christian structures. There are kinds of things that we build when we are holy. There are kinds of institutions that work for people striving to be saints, and then there, on the other side, there are kinds of institutions. There's kinds of forms of governance, of rule, of military power, of finance, which are forms proper to vicious people, to people not trying to be saints. And it seems to us, it's always seemed to us that you cannot simply convert a corrupt regime, taking over of the vicious forms without doing damage to the faith. One of the ways this gets expressed is this idea that Catholics should move to DC, and they should take up internships within the kind of vast bureaucratic and judicial regime that that comprises DC. They should intern, they should clerk, and such, right? I'm sure this is your territory, right? But the unspoken secret of DC, and this is supposed to create a kind of uh, you know, by filling these crucial positions, we'll be able to turn the state itself towards its proper good, Jesus Christ, and then reap the fruits through the production of good laws, which you know teach, you know, citizens to be good. That's basically how I understand. But one of the unspoken secrets of D.C. is that everyone already is Catholic. I mean, the leftists complain about this all the time mm-hmm. that you can't go through this internship sort of world without running into lots of bright-eyed and motivated Catholics who are who are attempting, in their own way, something just like this, and that this has been the case for quite a while. I mean, as far as I can tell, this is almost identical to like the neoconservative movement. But the problem seems to be that the structures that are built to be efficacious for a vicious people seem to be more likely to produce acquiescence in the Catholic than they do for the Catholic to produce some kind of radical change mm. in the system in which he enters. I mean, you think about our Catholic presidents, Kennedy and Biden, right? Yeah. That a, and of course you have Kennedy's very famous promise that he wouldn't really be a Catholic when he's president. Right. And Biden exactly. didn't need to promise that because it was already obvious. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, I mean, even
1: our Supreme court justices, right.
2: Mm-hmm. And you have the ability Of course, and I want to say something for this idea, like there is a way in which given a wicked regime, given a tyrannical structure in which what you're presented with, what's given is bureaucracies, coercive law over any understanding of the common good, the attempt to govern a a nation without friendship. So sort of a, um, oh, I guess I was just gonna say bureaucratic again. (laughs) Uh, administration of the law that there's obviously a place for doing remedial work saying like these are wicked things that are going to to hurt people and indeed through the production of bad laws that are um, pretty much in sync with liberalism they have hurt people look at abortion and so there's a place to go there in order to stop in some way uh, in order to alleviate the level of harm and wickedness that these institutions do. But that saying that is very different than saying, well, this is just the natural form of politics. Obviously, a man is a political animal, so he organizes himself into massive bureaucracies and, and technological states. And all we need to do is is run them. Does that okay. make
1: sense? Yeah. So get correct me if I'm wrong, but you're basically saying instead of trying to convert an already corrupt system, You'd rather overhaul the system and establish something that's authentically Christian than trying to Christianize something that's not.
2: I think that building up Christian, the, the reality of Christianity, so it can be lived, is the source of any production of people who are able to to rule at any larger levels. I mean, the history of the early church is very much like this. Um, sometimes people like to describe it as you know, you just suddenly Constantine converts, and now Christianity's the way of the future but of course the only the years prior to constantine's conversion involved christians building up real new structures parallel to the roman empire to the point that they had a level of sufficiency a level of friendship between themselves that they could be powerful, that that there was a regime form available to them, namely that virtuous people could be ruled by virtuous rulers. It just doesn't strike me as plausible that when Christ came and died for us and told us to sanctify the whole world, that what we're supposed to do is somehow only efficacious as long as there's this parallel political structure that we can take over. That, that has no inherent or intrinsic reference to Christianity, but exists sort of naturally, as it were, and which enables the Christians to kind of take over, as it were, and then turn society towards the good. It seems to me if Christianity is true, it needs to always be true right now. Like, all, like every person, every family, every community, every city needs to be capable of pursuing the good right now, attaining it right now. Um, And that's something I see lacking in a lot of our political thought that involves a kind of quick fix.
1: I got you. I was actually at a conference, Andrew Willard Jones was there. Um, It was a common good conference in DC. And DC Schindler was talking about monarchy. And this seems to be a very popular topic among integralists. I mean, to me, it makes sense. I don't think it's really that crazy. Is that something that new polity is is saying that this is the aim this is the goal or practically speaking what are you guys really trying to do um yeah. that's sufficiently different from what you know vermil's crew is doing
2: well with regards to the first question the the ideal of monarchy is absolutely our ideal um and as it was of plato and aristotle because because the meaning of it is that it's the kind of rule, this kind of power, royal power that becomes efficacious insofar as people are virtuous and free. So the king rules free men, and the tyrant rules slaves. And I think what we have in America right now is it is tyranny ruling slaves. And so there's a certain way which, you know, trads can get very romantic about monarchy and and sort of imagine, you know, Charlemagne coming from the hills, and he's going to rule America or something like that, which is You know, something that I guess being online makes plausible. But the point is, you can't have a efficacious royal power like that, where people can be commanded into to follow the common good, unless you have a virtuous people who desire to be commanded, who are trying to extend the peace and the love and the happiness of Christianity in a ever extending network of friendships. I mean, that is what a king rules is a society of friends. So absolutely, it's the ideal. And you might think of it this way. If we were to, in fact, establish for ourselves a society of friends, we would have created the ground necessary for a king.
1: Got you. So are you kind of more in like the Benedict option where you're trying to grow an actual community of virtuous people rather than focusing on on trying to like change the powers that be currently?
2: I'm not entirely sure it's entailed by the Benedict Option. I, I haven't read it, so I, I don't know exactly. Um, I'd say we are trying to pursue the end of politics at every level that politics is performed, uh, which is virtue. Wherever the institutions are not favorable to the production of virtue in people, then they need to be reformed or overthrown. Yeah. So, so what are we practically doing? I mean, we are trying to stay in one place. We're trying not to be alienated or self-interested or motivated more by money and security than by um, holiness and virtue, which is hard. It sounds like bragging, but it's so hard that it's not bragging. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so what this involves is allowing the Christian message to build institutions at every level. So allowing Christian love to build institutions. So, I mean, it, it becomes so, local and so practical that I fear it would bore you to say like, well, what are we doing? It's like, well, on some levels, because we don't have simply the aim of, you know, take over the administrative state or something, then there is something to be done at every level of human interaction in existence, which it would be a long list. I mean, here in Stimble, we're making um, employee owned businesses. We're trying to do um, trying to just increase the amount of work, we're doing. We're starting a trade school. Um, We are trying to um, help people get out of debt in various ways so that their fundamental experience of reality is one of gift uh, rather than one of exchange. Um, We are, again, staying in one place, buying gravestones, uh, having families, and trying to say yes to life. I mean, I could just do this this list for a while i mean we do festivals and saints days feast days all that all that sort of thing but none of this precludes some kind of operation at some higher level Uh, and this is where i think people can get mistaken they can imagine like oh well if you have a concern for the small things then there's some kind of lack of concern for for big things but i would just rephrase that there's a concern for small things insofar as they concern virtue and there's a concern for big things insofar as they concern virtue what there is not a concern for is institutions that are the product of a vicious regime so yeah there's a lack of interest in like running bureaucracies for instance because the very form of life that it inaugurates and the relationships it inaugurates between the person at the desk and the person behind the desk are inhuman and vicious and so we don't want a part of that but the idea is not that for instance we wouldn't be interested in if a bureaucracy was directly inimical to the lower goods that we are establishing say the festivals or something That we wouldn't want a man in the bureaucracy to mess things up. All
1: right, so I am here with Jackie Fatsko, who's the executive director of Lake County Right to Life and also the treasurer of Right to Life Coalition of Ohio and the mother of my two best friends. So I wanted to have you on, Jackie, because for those of our listeners who maybe are out of state or didn't quite understand the vote that we just had in Ohio for
3: issue one, can you explain what it was? Sure thing. Okay, issue one was brought up. Actually, they attempted to get issue one on the ballot back in May, um, but that was defeated by um, the Ohio Democrats. So it showed up in August. Um as a special election. And basically, um, this is a, this issue is a response to special interest groups trying to target states like us who have who, who makes it very easy to change our constitution. Um, they can come in and easily amend our constitution because um, we are at a fifty percent plus one person majority in order to change the constitution. So this issue also, was brought up because of the November ballot initiative that's coming up, which uh, seeks to enshrine abortion as a constitutional right in Ohio for any stage, reason, age, whatever. So it was um, hope, we hope that we could have um, said yes to issue one. If that had passed, it would have made it very unlikely for the November ballot to pass because it would have required a 60% a supermajority from the voters in order for that to pass. So obviously issue one failed and
1: in large part because of Northern Ohio. And when I was looking at the map, I mean, we look like California. So I wanted to ask you what happened on the ground game.
3: Okay. First off, the opposition had um, their messaging out three weeks prior to our messaging. And you might remember uh, the advertisement where they have the Constitution being cut with a pair of scissors. Um, their messaging was blatant lies that somehow uh, voters were going to lose their rights, um, it, how the 40%, you know, is going to represent uh, Ohio voters and getting things passed. It was, it was such a ludicrous advertisement, but people bought it hook, line, and sinker, and it created a lot of confusion. So what happened on the ground, um, number one, we were kind of late to the game. We didn't have our messaging out sooner. We also lacked unity in our messaging because this issue, one wasn't just supported by the pro-life community. You had your guns rights people, small businesses. um you had a number of different organizations that were also backing this issue. So the messaging was kind of disunified. Um, you had the pro-life angle, you had small business angle, you had the gun rights angle. Um, so we lacked unity in messaging. Um, also, We did not do well with our early voter turnout. The other side did extremely well. And so I may look like California, but there were things with our strategy that kind of went amiss. And I think they won because it was so confusing. I had pro-life people coming to me at a festival so confused. They thought voting no was the pro-life response. Um, And so their advertising did a really good job in confusing the people that they didn't know what was the right vote. And the way they did their advertising, it presented it in a very, um, shall we say, conservative look in their advertising. You know, they talked about saving the constitution. Um, And so they, they really did a good good job. Their messaging is excellent. And even when it's blatant lies. So that's what happened in Ohio. Um, A lot of confusion. I don't think it represents at all where the pro-life community is on this issue, because really who carried the weight of the work involved with um, issue one was the pro-life community, our churches, and Christians.
1: Wow. Well, I hope we're fixing this for November. Like what does this mean for November? What is what is it, going to be
3: on the ballot and what do people need to know and how should they vote? Okay. okay what's going to be on the ballot is um, they're trying to amend our constitution that would make it a constitutional right in Ohio, um, to have abortion at any stage, any age, for any reason, up to birth. Also also,
1: right? Wasn't it also very vague in terms of terminology when it comes to sex? Oh, the
3: language is deliberately vague. And so they'll tell you, oh, no, 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 you know, that's not true. But it is true um, because it's open-ended. The other thing it's going to do is eliminate uh, parental rights. Um, They won't have a say whether their child gets an abortion. They don't even have to be informed if their child seeks an abortion. Um, and the other thing that is even more disturbing to me, in addition, just that you can kill a child for any reason, is that the health standards for our abortion mills will, they won't um, have to be around anymore because that would be considered restrictive. So it's, it's really, it's the most radical piece I've seen and for it to be introduced into a, a, the state of Ohio. Yeah.
1: Does that not shock you?
3: It, it doesn't shock me because of the way we can amend our Constitution. That's why they're here. Mm. The states that they've targeted. Are the easy is ones. easy. Yeah. yeah. If we had a 60% um, supermajority needed to amend our Constitution, they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't have even tried. But they know they can win if our people don't turn out and vote. So the emphasis for this coming November, and we're going to start as soon as possible, is getting out the vote. Our people are not voting. Um, I was just on a call yesterday and a, a major urban right to life organization was going through their donor list. And they were find, they were seeing and comparing it to registered voters. And some of their own donors weren't even registered to vote. Oh. So this is a real problem is getting people out to vote. And at our last major general election in Ohio, you had a 47 percent voter turnout of registered voters. Wow. So that's the problem. Um, We really need to get people out and vote. So do we feel more unified for November? Oh, absolutely. We have such a good base right now because this special election turned out over three million people. And that's really unusual. And about one point five million people voted in favor of issue one. So we have that to start with. We have been educating um, since uh, May about the November ballot initiative. And when the issue one came to play, we also educated uh, people about that. So we have a much more informed base right now. So what we're really targeting is getting people to vote. That is going to be a prime a uh, strategic maneuver, and we're going to be starting that soon. That means going door to door. Susan B. Anthony has been doing that for us, and they've reached over 100,000 households already, and we still have until, you know, November. So that's key. Our primary strategy is prayer fasting. Lake County Right to Life and Cleveland Praise for Life um, have reached out to all of the 40 Days for Life campaign captains in Ohio and for this upcoming campaign in the fall, we are amping up the prayer and fasting for the defeat of the initiative. So we are asking all participants to pray the rosary every day during the 40 Days for Life campaign and sacrifice a meal a day. And if you're not Catholic, we're asking people to spend 20 minutes a day in prayer for the defeat of the initiative. We got this idea from, have you heard of the ba- Battle of Lepanto? Yes, Back in the fifteen hundreds, when um, the Pope, I forget, it was a Pope, Pope Pius, I forget the number, but he called on the people to pray. They were, they were, this country was going to be invaded by various uh, empires, and the Pope called on their people to pray the Rosary, and it was miraculously defeated. They just, it, they won, and it was, you know, by human standards, it, that was impossible, So that's what we're banking on because i think this battle is even more important it's the battle of babies and um what happens in ohio if this november ballot initiative passes in ohio we're doomed as a nation
1: you are listening to base catholic this is your host jessica kramer in my next interview i talk with tom shakley of americans united for life on the impact of liberalism when it comes to public discourse surrounding social issues
0: Congratulations on the launch. I know, uh, oh, thank you know last you. time we all saw you, we were at uh, at the Denine book launch. So it's, uh, it's a great step.
1: Yeah, yeah. It finally got off the ground. Tom, I wanted to have you on for a base perspective on the issue with returning things like abortion back to the States. Everyone was super excited when Roe v. Wade was overturned, but I was kind of wary because I knew exactly where this fight was going to be going. We just saw what happened in Ohio with issue one and now the impending fight that we're going to have on our hands for November. What's your overall take?
0: Wow, Jessica, that's a big question, you know, but I'm happy to, happy to do what I can. I think, you know, the, the question right now in front of the American people is actually much simpler than we might think it is. It, it boils down to, is the preborn child a human person deserving of the equal protection of the laws under the American Constitution? This has been the challenge in front of us, the question in front of us since Roe v. Wade, since before Roe v. Wade. You know, the equal protection battles have have taken place in various ways throughout our history, obviously most notably with the battle over slavery, the Civil War. Um, you think about the, the the famous or infamous Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, really boiled down to what sort of constitution, what sort of people we are and will be. And that, that same issue, that same challenge is before us today in figuring out whether we're going to recognize the humanity of the preborn child, or whether we're going to to denigrate that that child. Um, so yeah, it's it's it is a big question. I think you're right to to fr- phrase the question the way you did. Uh, and there's a lot of a lot of aspects we can get into.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to start out. Do you think that this should be left up to democracy? Is this a thing that we should vote on? You know, because this is coming down the pike in November in Ohio, whether we're going to have a constitutional right to abortion or not for our state and every state, you know, especially easy states where you just need 51 majority could easily vote like this. And so, yay, Roe v. Wade is overturned. But does it really matter on the ground when it comes to saving lives and protecting these babies?
0: Right. Well, and I don't. I don't want to do too much retread. I know you and I have both discussed this uh, many times. And you know, the the challenge that we faced with Roe, uh, and most recently with Dobbs, was that you know, in Dobbs, the court didn't give us you know really what uh, we would consider to be justice. It gave us sort of a procedural win, uh, a really important strategic, a uh, procedural win, I should say, in the sense that we finally no longer had a kind of a national abortion policy or a national abortion control board in the form of the supreme court those are good things that's fine but to your point about uh, making it purely a democratic issue that is a constitutional error that previous supreme courts previous american jurists in our history would recognize as an error We have difficulty recognizing it as an error today, even on the right or within conservative circles or pro-life circles or however you want to parse those groups, uh, because we've kind of become so inflected by uh, basically enlightenment liberalism that we've come to kind of cut off our own roots. And because we're no longer rooted, because we no longer kind of know where the law comes from, um, from natural rights, Uh, you know, embedded in the natural law. Uh, In other words, the idea that justice has an objective character, that there's a reality to justice um, that lends meaning to things that we have in our particular instance, in our nation, ideas like equal protection have to be rooted ultimately in justice and the natural law and the natural rights that flow from it. Uh, Many on the right today have forgotten that entirely and have more or less depending on the person or the organization, have more or less come to basically agree with enlightenment and liberal propositions that even constitutional law can bracket those objective realities, that even constitutional law can leave something like the question of who gets to live and who gets to die up to voters, yeah. up to majoritarian factions and states. And there are certain things that that don't get a vote. You know, human rights don't get a vote.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was just thinking about it. You know, even looking at the news, I'm like, there's just so many things that people would be so afraid to say. I don't even know if they believe it. But even if they did, they would be so afraid (laughs) to say it. I mean, I was just looking this week. I mean, whether it's Congresswoman Nancy Mace that's lecturing those of us on the right that we need to make contraception more accessible for women if we're going to take away their backup contraception or... Congressman Max Miller telling someone in the name of religious freedom, ironically, that they can't make an absolute religious statement. And instead, you're going to have someone like a congresswoman, Ilhan Omar, of all people, defend the Christian on Twitter. Like, why does it feel like Republicans are the biggest defenders of liberalism, more so than even the new progressives? Like, they're more liberal than the liberals sometimes.
0: Well, you know, we we kind of alluded to. I spoke about the Lincoln Douglas debate a moment ago, and you know, we're talking about these human rights battles. And I, I think again, too, something right from those Lincoln Douglas debates. Uh, Lincoln famously talked about the importance of public sentiment. You know, he said the public sentiment is everything, and you know, with it, nothing can fail, and without it, nothing can succeed. Uh, many people remember that line, uh, and many people on the right today, I think, as you're kind of pointing out, are in some sense captured by public sentiment you know they think of the people in dc or elsewhere who only act with their finger to the wind or only act if they read their recent poll or people who are pro-life and think we can only propose pro-life laws incremental steps if we have the polling data you know if the people are ready now, of course, they ignore that when seven men on the US Supreme Court in 1973 handed down Roe, <laughs> they didn't have their finger to the wind. They didn't ask, is the public ready to accept abortion? They just did it. And if you took a poll the day before or after Roe v. Wade was handed down, an overwhelming supermajority of Americans would have said this is an unjust law. Um, but you know, one of the things that is not as well remembered about uh, what Lincoln had to say about public sentiment or in those Lincoln-Douglas debates was was his critique of Douglas, you know he he basically viewed Douglas, who was promoting the idea of popular popular sovereignty, right on slavery? He said basically, let the people decide more or less, make it a state issue, right uh, and and Lincoln is critiquing Douglas there because you know, he said and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but Lincoln's critique of Douglas boiled down to Douglas is promoting an indifference to something that has an objective moral character, mm. this issue of slavery. And by promoting an indifference to it, by suggesting that the law should be indifferent to it, that's naturally going to shape the culture and it's gonna shape yeah. public sentiment to accept it and endorse it, right? And so even this, this this frame that you're pointing out that many on the right adopt of, well, let's, let's just be reasonable, quote unquote, let's be likable, quote unquote, let's not get into the hard issues, uh, that in itself, is is just what Lincoln's pointing out that Douglas was doing. It's, in fact, just an indifference to the objective character, the objective question at the heart of our politics.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's so funny because liberalism is, is this illusion that we have a neutral public space. But there was recently a story that came out about the Catholic couple in Massachusetts that are being denied being foster parents, because they don't hold the right opinion on homosexuality, according to the state religion. Like, why do, why do we pretend that there's no state religion?
0: I appreciate I, I appreciate uh, that, that you have a show where you can just openly point that out, that there's a state religion. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> we used to have those, of course, right? At the, at the founding of the United States, uh, you know, the states actually did have uh, official religions. The national government didn't, but the states did. Uh, and and yeah, we've never really escaped that, have we? And I think uh, that that's something that is so crucial for us uh, across the human rights spectrum to keep in mind, uh, which is that uh, many people have come to accept a kind of a menagerie or cornucopia of ideas about human persons that are totally conflicting, totally at odds, uh, and they do it under the idea that uh, well, you know, they say America, you know, this is just a pluralistic nation. You know, there's just so many people, so many different backgrounds and beliefs. So all the law can do is kind of play referee. Uh, But what (laughs) they forget in thinking that way is that, you know, the ref (laughs) is operating by a rule book, uh, you know, whether it's the NFL or whatever. Right. And it's like, so, so the referee still has to follow, uh, certain doctrines and dogmas as it were and the whole question of law and politics is well what are those going to be they're not going to be just generic uh procedural things they're going to get down as well to substantive things uh you know the ref cares as much about how the ball is passed in what way and to whom uh as they do about how that how equitable th- there is for the team to play you know making both sides uh, making sure both sides have time with the ball making sure that uh, that, that offense and defense are, are are playing within boundary lines that allow for uh, an, an end that both sides will see as just. And that's just what the problem with our politics is today is we forget that there's a ref, we forget that they're operating from a rule book, and we forget that the goal isn't interminable fighting, it isn't ultimately the domination of, of one side uh, over another uh, or the subjugation of, of one side, but ultimately it's political uh, it's it's a true political community where there is there is a degree of pluralism but it's pluralism under uh, a true reality which is you know uh, recognizing that the Constitution protects all persons for instance that the Constitution can't bracket natural rights uh, that votes can't deny certain natural rights uh, and that in that in that objective uh, way of doing politics of living together well that's where we have our true liberty that's where the libertarians so often get it wrong, right? They forget that, that you can't, you know, that liberty isn't simply license, uh, but that liberty is ultimately the freedom for excellence. Uh, And if we have lost touch with what excellence uh, consists of, we're in a hopeless place.
1: Well, you just spoke about reality. I mean, I was thinking about, it's like a platitude that every presidential candidate will mention while they're campaigning. You know, the greatest thing about this country is that we can disagree and, you know, we're still Americans. But I'm like, we don't even essentially fundamentally agree on anything, like not even reality, not what is a man, what is a woman, when does life begin? Like these fundamentals right. that you would require for society to operate under, they're just lost. And so I don't really know how you can unify a country that doesn't even agree on objective truth or reality. One of the presidential candidates recently, Vivek Ram- Ramaswamy, I can't even say his last name.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Is that it? Okay. Um, That's it. Got it. <laughs> He said that he doesn't have a negative view of same-sex couples. Now, it's one thing to say that you don't have a negative feeling towards the person in that relationship. But I think the issue is to condone that relationship. That's an entirely other thing. That's actually the very thing that gives way to what we're seeing now with the gender ideology. How do people not see that connection? Because I think... Gay marriage has become just so accepted in culture that Americans are never going to go backwards on that, but they don't see the connection between that and abortion and contraception and now what we're seeing with the gender ideology. And and there's also this just assumption that adults can make decisions, they can act and dress and behave in ways in which they want, but that it's not okay for children. I, I just see all these arguments being made and I'm like, we're constantly trying to say people can do whatever they want, but they can't do this. And I just I don't think that that's going to hold up for very long because I think people see the flaw in that argument.
0: Yeah. No, I think I think that's a good analysis, Jessica. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Americans United for Life uh, is a secular, you know, a nonpartisan advocacy organization on the human right to life. But, you know, as a Catholic, I'm totally aligned with with what you're talking about here, in particular, the need essentially to go back to the basics. I mean, I'm thinking of, of many, many good bishops out there. You know, Bishop Barron has made this point recently uh, that the poor catechesis has compromised our ability to witness to the faith. Uh, you know, Archbishop de in in San Francisco has said basically the same thing recently in recent weeks. I really appreciate these comments because I just find them to be so true. I mean, I think of the the, the formation or lack thereof that I grew up with in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia as a kid, going to Catholic schools. Uh, and you know what I came out with uh, in terms of my knowledge of the faith was so thin, so thin. and yeah. and you know in that way, I realized how how
1: Catholic schools much are a whole other topic. <laughs>
0: Well, yes, yeah, no, but I mean, it's true. But I mean, I think about how much grace I've received just in, in, in coming into a, a fuller sense of the faith over time, that the people that that uh, God has put in my life and so forth. And, you know, I realize, uh, you know, I, I am a sinner, man, right? Like, I need, I need the confessional, mm-hmm. uh, I need the sacraments, I need mass. And without these things, I can't make sense of what's going on in the public square. I can't make sense of it. And so I think of, of, you know, I'm connecting that in my mind a bit with Tucker Carlson's speech, which you may have talked about at some point of his kind of last speech at the Heritage Foundation 50th anniversary gala right before Fox News cut ties with him. And he made the point that, you know, what we're seeing in our culture on all these issues that you mentioned, it goes way beyond reasoned debate, you know, to paraphrase Carlson, he's talking, he's like, he's like, this isn't a matter of issuing kind of like a a better researched white paper with more footnotes. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like this is there is a diabolical character to it uh, that, that goes to to the heart of our reality and and I so I think about that in the context of of our faith and the need to recognize the difference between true and false religion and the need to to recognize that we are called every day that we're alive to to breathe in uh, the fullness of our faith and to live it out and 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 that includes all that stuff right the confessional. Uh, as well as the altar, uh, the home, as well as the public square, we're we're, we're craving it. I, and I don't think we can make sense of of the problems that America is confronting without uh, kind of confronting those problems in our own heart first, and then critically, and then being willing to go out and reform law and policy that will reform the
1: culture. This has been the base Catholic. I'm Jessica Kramer. I want to thank my guests, Josh Booth, for helping me with this week's show. And our show's chaplain, Father Kevin Esterbrook of Cleveland, but most of all, you for listening. Make sure to tune in next week.
0: I need more Base! If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic. Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The Answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jessica Kramer
1: helps
3: you be Catholic and be based. There's a show, that's a show.